History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Spooktacular people, welcome to this 403rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be in Seattle, Washington, checking out the Butterworth Building. And what's really cool about this location for us is we kind of have an affinity for all things related to death and cemeteries and such. And this is really where the mortuary business got started. Very cool. We have some spirits here to share with everybody. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Joaquin, Crystal, Tina, Terry with an I, Collins, Michelle with two L's, Brittany with two T's, Elizabeth with an S instead of a Z, Dennis, and Katerina. Thank you for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity comes from a display at Scott County Jail in Tennessee. The town of Helenwood got its name from a tragedy. In 1935, the town suffered a horrific explosion, and the townspeople referred to it as Hell in the Woods, and that name stuck and became Helenwood. This name seems oddly appropriate since the devil came to Helenwood and Scott County in the 1920s. Cruz Sexton was a resident of Scott County who had recently come back from China. He had been fascinated by the statues he saw in China and decided to build his own. He found some clay near an abandoned coal mine, and he started building a demon-like statue that was taller than any man and very detailed with horns. The muscles were outlined, and there was a chain from an arm to a leg. Sexton's mother soon found out what he was doing, and after the man moved the statue to a relative's house, word started to spread that the devil was in Helenwood. So many people wanted to see the devil that Sexton and his relative set the statue in a massive coffin and took it to the railroad station. People came from all around the country to see it. They paid 25 cents for a 20-minute view. Some people fainted at the sight of the creature. The devil eventually ended up getting sold to the World's Fair. The devil of Scott County certainly was odd. Victoria from victoriaslift.com When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Ghost Bump Podcast. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history. In 
the month of September on the 18th in 1793, George Washington laid the cornerstone for the Capitol. The United States had no official Capitol building as a new country, and members of Congress had met in eight different cities. Washington probably had no idea that the building would take a century to build and that he would feature in the center of the Dome Rotunda with Constantino Brumidi's The Apotheosis of Washington. This is a weird and highly symbolic artistic rendering of Washington rising to the heavens in glory, surrounded by the gods of mythology. The dome was made from cast iron. The original design was created by Scotsman William Thornton, but a series of project managers and architects would work on the Capitol through the decades. Some people may not realize that the Capitol's dome is meant to serve as the womb to the Washington Monument's phallic symbol, and that it was inspired by the way the Vatican is set up. The cornerstone laying ceremony was headed by the Masons, of which Washington was a member, and he wore full Masonic regalia. Many people probably also do not know that the building was going to be called the Congress House, but Thomas Jefferson insisted on calling it the Capitol after the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus on Capitoline Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome. That's why you sometimes hear the Capitol referred to as the Temple of Democracy. And now, all states have a Capitol, too. The Butterworth Building in Seattle, Washington, is home to Kell's Irish Restaurant and Pub. This building had once been home to a mortuary, and the man who built and ran it is credited with creating the terms mortuary and mortician. Nearly all of Seattle's dead at that time passed through the doors here, and with that many dead bodies, there is little surprise that this building has many ghost stories connected to it. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Butterworth Building. The Butterworth Building is really uniquely designed because it's on a hill. So it depends upon what side you're looking at it from, how you would describe it. The part of the building that's on First Avenue has three stories, while if you go to the other side on Post Alley, it has five stories. How odd. It is odd. <laughs> I do have to say, working here in Florida, we don't really have basements in Florida because of our water table. But I clean at a few homes where they have, quote unquote, basements that are walkout basements. So when you look at the front of the house, it looks like it's a one story house. But when you're in it, you go downstairs, you go out the sliding glass doors and you're in a backyard. So it looks like a two story house from the back. So it's all about being on a hill. Interesting. To us, the building almost looks like it's squeezed between two other large and taller buildings. You know, usually when we go to some of these downtown areas that have these older buildings, they're all pretty level, about the same height. This one is a squatchy little building shoved between two other ones, almost like it doesn't really belong there. It's just really weird because you think that they'd build everything about the same height. The building is close enough to Pike's Place Market that it is included in that historic district. There's a great history here for us HGB people. As I said earlier, we love our cemeteries and mortuaries, and this building was specifically built to be a mortuary. It wasn't some other building that they moved a mortuary into. How lovely is that, Kelly? Extremely. <laughs> and I love that the guy's last name is Butterworth. Edgar Ray Butterworth had the building made, and he was the first mortician. 
And this guy is going to be fascinating to talk about because he never meant to be an undertaker. E.R. Butterworth was born in the Boston suburbs in 1847 and as a teenager worked as a hatter there. Then he studied law. With that start, no one would think he would end up as a cattleman in Kansas. But that is what happened. While in Kansas, he met up with a settler whose wife and newborn baby had just died. The settler needed to make a coffin, but there was no lumber around. Butterworth tore wood off his own wagon and fashioned a coffin for the man. In 1881, Edgar moved on to Washington and found that this was not a place for cattle. So he built a steam-powered flour mill. He and his family, which consisted of his second wife, the first died in childbirth, and a son, moved to Centralia, Washington. Butterworth started a furniture shop and got involved with politics, serving as mayor, and then in the state legislature. Then an epidemic of black diphtheria hit, and Butterworth was called into action with building coffins and his life as an undertaker was underway. Some interesting little side notes that I wanted to point out. One of the other things that he did while he was in Kansas is there was a lot of buffalo bones out there, and they would make money collecting these buffalo bones and turning them in to be pounded down for various things that they used for building and such. So he was out there collecting a lot of bones. So it's just very interesting. It's almost like death was following him around and going, you're going to be part of me. Because not only are you collecting bones, later on you're going to be working with bones and all kinds of things with burying people. But I think he really felt sorry for this settler that he came upon because he had already lost his own wife in childbirth. And so he understood this man's pain. And so he's like, oh, I'll rip my wagon apart, make sure we can get a coffin for his wife and stuff. that was very nice. And then the city in Washington, Centralia, isn't that the place that's on fire in Pennsylvania or whatever that's been burning for decades underneath the ground? I'm not sure what that is. The Centralia Mine Fire is a coal seam fire, and it's been burning under Centralia, Pennsylvania since 1962. Whoa. They don't know exactly what started it, but it's got all this coal that's underneath the city that they built on top of, and somehow it got lit up, and so it just keeps burning, and everybody had to abandon the city because, I mean, it's on fire underneath. That's crazy. People think that it could continue to burn for over 250 years. So they don't try to put it out or anything? There's there's no way they can. I mean, it's underground, and you can wow. imagine if you've got coal burning, it's not going to stop. Seattle had a problem with bodies piling up from mining accidents, epidemics of diphtheria, tuberculosis, and the Spanish flu. Then you got crime and poor sanitation on top of that. The situation was so dire that bodies would regularly just appear on the streets of Seattle. Can you imagine? Oh, there's another dead body, Frank. Good grief. And the city issued a standing offer to any undertakers that they would be paid $50 for each body they took off the street. Call this a morbid community cleanup program. You want to head that up, Kelly? Butterworth had relocated to Seattle and he saw a real opportunity here because he already had been offering coffins through his furniture business. He purchased a controlling interest in the Cross and Company undertakers that was located in the Masonic Temple on the northeast corner of 2nd Avenue and Pike Street. And he had five of his sons join him in the business. These would be Gilbert Butterworth and his half-brothers Charles Norwood Butterworth, Frederick Ray Butterworth, Harry Edgar Butterworth, and Benjamin Kent Butterworth. So, of course, Butterworth named the business E.R. Butterworth and Sons. There are claims that Butterworth would pocket half of the $50 for every body brought to his mortuary if a regular citizen brought the body in. And there are even claims that there was some kind of undertaker race that the Butterworths took part in as they tried to be the first to get to all the dead bodies. Can you imagine? We have a dead body race. Come on. Descendants say that any claims of corruption are just wrong. 
And let me just say, I watched the episode of Ghost Adventures, who went in to investigate this place, and Zach kept emphasizing how this was a corrupt mortuary. But as I looked at all of the research, not only did I not find anything that I would relate to being corrupt, but you're going to find out this is a beloved family and they did a great service to the city. I don't know if there was some shady stuff going on here and there, but I wouldn't just label the whole mortuary as corrupt. Butterworth decided he needed to build a bigger location specifically made to handle the dead. So in 1903, he hired English architect John Graham. Graham's firm would go on to build the Space Needle. For this project, he designed a five-story building with a chapel that could hold up to 200 people, a casket showroom, a crematorium, a columbarium, and the very first elevator on the West Coast. Can you imagine the first elevator on the West Coast is inside a mortuary? You would have thought a hotel or something. (laughs) Right. It took eight design changes before Butterworth saw what would become his perfect palace of death that he would later dub a mortuary. The building was built in the Beaux-Arts architectural style of the era and featured four sculpted lion heads on the facade. And the inside had lavish embellishments of bronze, mahogany, brass, stained glass, Flemish oak, and Victorian filigree. The bottom floor held the horses and hearses and was level with Post Alley so that the moving of bodies was discreet. The heating plant for the building was located here too. The first floor was above the grade of Post Alley, but still below the First Avenue grade, and this had what they called the stock room. There were fireproof vaults here for storing bodies. Can you imagine calling that the stock room? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going down to the stock room and check out a few bodies. I'm going down to look at the bodies. <laughs> We need Boris Karloff. This was the first time Seattle had a place to properly store the dead, while families made decisions about what they wanted to do as a memorial for their family member. The main floor faced First Avenue and had the chapel, complete with a choir balcony. Can you imagine building a little chapel for the funeral? You got a choir balcony in it? No. An embalming room, morgues, private offices, and a storage room with flourish items like pedestals, canopies, and laying out beds. There was a private room for clergy and family to meet as well. A best showroom featured the high-end caskets that could cost as much as $890 at that time, which was pretty expensive for that time. The upper floor had three flats for employees to live in, and right below them was the main showroom. On this floor, there were women's burial garments, a consulting room, a showroom for child coffins, and a private reception. The variety in burial clothing and coffins revealed that this was a mortuary for everyone in the city, whether they were poor or rich and Butterworth and Sons was the main mortuary for everyone in the city. Some of the bodies that came through here reputedly belonged to victims of Dr. Linda Hazard, who we covered on our episode about Starvation Heights. She starved her patients to death. There's a scandal connected here because Butterworth cremated the emaciated body of Claire Williamson quickly and presented a different body at the funeral. The mortuary had also picked up the body without a license, and one of the employees pled guilty to that charge. The Butterworths were never charged with any wrongdoing, but people in town did whisper, and despite ER's protests, papers claim that they were friends with Hazard. I'm not sure what all happened here. I know that if they went and picked up the body without a license, they were hiding something. True. And so I don't know if she, she clearly was making a ton of money starving these people to death and having them sign all of their estates over to her. I have a feeling she might have passed him some money under the table to hide this, and I'm assuming it would be something that he regretted. This may be why Zach Baggins was emphasizing so much the corruption, that I wouldn't just label the entire Butterworth mortuary that's going to go on for years and years and years with that. 
The Butterworths revolutionized the funeral business and introduced many of the rites that we still carry on today. Funeral packages included transporting of the body via a hearse service, washing, embalming, and dressing the body, publishing death notices, providing flowers, a choir, and musicians, burial permits, and an air-sealed vault. Everybody in town seemed to love the Butterworths, and there were always plenty of handshakes and pats on the back when they walked the streets. They were part of the elite class of Seattle, members of the Masonic Order, and regulars at the Arctic Club, which was a cognac-sipping and cigar-smoking salon where the 1909 Alaska-Yukon-Pacific Exposition was planned. This club is today a Doubletree Hotel by Hilton, but it still features the walrus head carvings that decorate the outside. And wouldn't you know, this place is supposedly haunted. I'll try to get some pictures up of the Arctic Club on Instagram because when we say walrus head carvings, I mean, there's a ton of them on the outside of this building. (laughs) It's all along it. And it's just these heads with these tusks coming down. It's really cool. So unique. The Arctic Club was started by two men who made their fortunes during the Yukon Gold Rush. This would become a club where adventurers traveling to and from Alaska could stop in to drink and share their stories. Later, the offices of Congressman Marion Zionchek would be here, and this guy was quite the character, given to outrageous antics and even some mental health breakdowns, the last of which led him to leaping to his death from the fifth floor. His spirit is said to haunt the building now. People feel cold spots, hear a disembodied male voice, and disembodied footsteps. And the elevator can be erratic and likes to stop on the fifth floor even when no one has pushed that button. Some people even claim to see the residual body of Zionchek on the street. Gilbert and Frederick would continue on in the business after the passing of their father, and several of their own sons joined them in the business. The Butterworth Building would lose its death anchor in 1923, though, when the business moved to a different building on Melrose. This had more room. The former chapel at the mortuary hosted the second funeral of Bruce Lee, which I thought was a really cool little connection, and would go on to become the chapel bar and then the pine box bar. This location is apparently haunted by two ghosts an angry older man, and a little girl. White Noise Paranormal investigated in 2013, and they caught an EVP of a little girl asking, we're asleep? And I actually heard it. It was pretty creepy. It's definitely the voice of a little girl. And also a whispered, go home. And they heard an audible no. So all of them were standing there talking, and they all went, did you hear that? And they all did. A chain mechanism that was installed in the basement was attached with a screw that takes 47 turns to get to come free because they tested it. And one night, the staff heard it crash to the floor. They have no idea how it came undone, but when they counted to see how many turns it took to release, they were blown away wondering how a ghost managed to do that. So what we just shared here, this is the second building that the Butterworth Mortuary was inside of. That's where Bruce Lee's funeral and everything happened. This is not at the Butterworth Building. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Hey, Kelly, what are you and Mort doing over there? Just playing a game on my phone. What game? Best Fiends. Fiends? Wow. Like friends without the R. Okay. (laughs) You guys have been playing that for a long time. I know. I just can't put it down. Oh, you know what? I think I heard about this. It's some kind of a match three style game. Yes, it's a mobile puzzle game. You play through an actual storyline, complete with good guys, the fiends, And not so good, guys, the slugs. Slug bug. Ew, slugs? Yeah, they're they're pretty fun. They make these funny little noises when they're talking. And when you kill the slugs or when you're beating them up, they make these funny farting noises. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun to me. (laughs) Kelly said fart. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I'd heard when it talks about the storyline and everything, they start out as these baby versions and then they get older or bigger as you go along. They evolve, yeah. And then you have more fiends that join your team as you go along as well. I'm already on level 45. Well, there's thousands of them, so you got a long way to go. This is true. And the best part of this is it's free to download. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And this episode was brought to you by HelloFresh. Kelly, Mort's back to cooking again. Mort is a chef. Voila. Woohoo! That's why I love HelloFresh, because it gets him to pitch in in the kitchen. It sure does. And, you know, he does a really darn good job of it. He does. The recipes are so easy to follow. They go step by step and HelloFresh sends you all the ingredients you need measured out perfectly. So not only do you not have any waste, but again, it makes it real easy to cook. It's all so fresh, too. And right now is coming into our favorite time of the year, fall. (laughs) And the fall harvest is officially on with HelloFresh. They have seasonal recipes like pumpkin cinnamon rolls and Thanksgiving ready sides as well as all kinds of fresh, high-quality ingredients that travel from the farm to your front door. This gives you flexibility. You can customize your order in any way that you need. And it has an app that you can load up on your phone, so it makes it even easier. You can do it within minutes. It's a big win for back-to-school season and helps you out with your meal planning. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Bump14 and use code Bump14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Bump14 and use code Bump14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. The Butterworth Building now no longer was a mortuary and ownership gets a bit murky. Unfortunately, much of the interior was lost over time. And it was hard for me to suss out what all happened here, who was where, because I didn't keep in mind, this is a weird building. On the front, it looks like it's this many stories. On the back, it's this many stories. So this has had multiple businesses in it because of different floors that businesses were on. First, I was like, I am getting really frustrated because I can't figure out. It says this has been here for this amount of time, but it couldn't possibly be there if this one was there and this one was there too. And then I realized, wait, they're on different floors. On the first floor, where the old chapel and mortuary office once was, there was a restaurant here for a bit called Cafe Sophie, owned by Scott and Sue Craig that lasted until 1997, and then a restaurant called Avenue One, owned by Arnie Millen, was here from 1997 to 2002, and then a Chinese restaurant owned by John David Crow called Fire and Ice Lounge, which opened in 2003, and finally the Starlight Lounge was here until 2007. Restaurants had a hard time staying in this space. Patrick McAleese and his sister Karen opened Kell's Irish Restaurant and Pub in 1983 in the basement, which has managed to stay here through the decades. The stockroom is used as a private banquet room. And remember what used to be in there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> We're going to have a private banquet room here where we used to keep the bodies. Word is that this pub holds the city's largest collection of single malt scotch. Throughout their time here, they've done a lot of renovations, which stirred up activity. During one period of renovation, Kells lost their construction permit because construction was going on in the building at 4 a.m. Karen explained that it was just the ghost, and the city responded by taking their permit away for a year. 
So they weren't doing the construction. The That's ghosts were crazy. in there doing stuff. And the city was like, uh-huh. <laughs> they took wow. their permit for a whole year. That's I was like, horrible. oh my gosh. They really had to go through a lot to get this place done up. I am not sure about what's there currently. I know we've got listeners in Seattle. Let us know. People have been really good about letting us know what has gone into places now and visiting these places. And I think that Kells renovated the area where all these other restaurants had been and is opening up another one of their own places there. But I'm not for sure. It's not surprising that a former mortuary has ghost stories. There are at least two spirits in the building, according to most employees and patrons. But as we're going to share, I think there's more than that. One is a little girl who appears to be eight years old with long red hair. She seems to like to play, but this playing usually comes off as pranks. She is most active during the day when there are other kids in the restaurant, and she likes Irish music and appears when that is playing. It is believed that she died during the 1918 influenza outbreak. One reason people believe that is because the paranormal activity here seems to ramp up in November, and it was during November of 1918 that the flu hit Seattle especially hard. The other ghost is thought to be male and has the name Charlie, or according to another account we read, Sammy. Pretty different on the names. But, <laughs> yeah. Or maybe we have two different guys here with different Could names. Be. Charlie seems to be attached to a mirror for Guinness beer. Guinness, yuck. <laughs> He'll show up in the mirror and then quickly disappear. He's always wearing a derby hat. Some say you'll see him in the mirror looking right at you and then he'll vanish. And then if you look away and then look back again, his visage reappears. And this time he'll be smiling at you. He can leave the mirror too, though, because musicians claim he's more active when live music is being played and they've witnessed his dark shadow near the stage. Sue Craig, who was one of the owners of Cafe Sophie, once saw shoes in a stall in the bathroom that disappeared. Arnie Millen of Avenue One said, Two wine bottles went flying off the rack, narrowly missing a manager's head. Then there was a long missing vase, inexplicably placed on a window table that had just been set. A diner fled after he was sure he saw an old woman hugging a shawl that disappeared into a wall. When the Fire and Ice Lounge was here, John David Crow claims that he watched a hanger straighten itself and then rock like a seesaw on a door handle. That is one of the most incredible things I've ever heard of. If you think of a wire hanger like becoming straight enough that it could rock back yeah, and forth like very a seesaw. Strange. No wire hangers! Oh my gosh. <laughs> we know what that ghost is from. The wife of his business partner was in the restaurant late at night, and she heard a door shaking. She went to the door and put her hand on the door, and it stopped shaking. When she pulled her hand away, it started shaking again. Crow decided to call in a shaman, and the shaman claimed there were 19 ghosts in the building. He probably knows, so. The shaman blessing did little to help, though. A pastry chef was working at 2 a.m. and witnessed a female apparition in an unearthly white linen dress, is how he described it, float by. A restaurant manager claimed to see the same apparition at a different time. Michelle Mace, a former fire and ice manager who worked many late nights, said, you always feel someone is there and no one is there. So it's another one of these feeling like somebody's watching you. I've never had that feeling. Have you ever had one of those when we've been in a haunted location like you're being watched? No, I don't think so. Huh. The bartenders at Kells claim to see glasses move across the bar top all on their own and sometimes even slide off crashing to the floor. Karen McAleese tells a story about a mirror in the bar. They came into the pub early in the morning and they see the mirror on the floor shattered, but none of the pieces of the mirror had scattered. The mirror was still all together. Karen also said that they were watching security footage one day to see who had gotten into the pub at night. Their camera was motion sensitive and would come on if triggered. It was triggered many times, but they never saw anybody in the recorded footage. Karen had seen two full-bodied apparitions. 
She told the Seattle Times that on All Saints Day in 2005, she saw a tall man who looked like he was part black with a suit jacket on. He had very thin hands. He walked to the end of the bar and just kind of faded. She also saw the little girl. She described her as wearing a red taffeta dress, carrying a Raggedy Ann type doll. A few people have seen hands pressed upon the windows that leave behind dirty handprints, even though there's no person attached to any of this. Mercedes Caraba had run the market ghost tours. I think those are now defunct, which is a bummer. And she claimed to have spotted a pair of muddy, dirty hands pressed up in the windows of the First Avenue entrance to the building. Caraba says that area outside of the bar was near a Duwamish burial site and that a 19th century settler's graveyard is just a block away. And perhaps the spirit is connected to either of those things. The Duwamish were the area's only indigenous tribe. There may be other spirits here, though, too. After all, how many bodies came through this place? Candles are kept all around a small, ornate whiskey bar in a back corner of the restaurant, and they often all light up by themselves. Silverware levitates, and a chef who worked at Cafe Sophie claims that he set a knife down on the butcher block, and it started spinning around on its own. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be (laughs) witnessing that. He took off his apron, threw it on the ground, and left, never returning. And the stairs in the back seem to have a lot of activity. People catch orbs and hear disembodied voices. A contractor was once up on a ladder changing a light in the chapel, and when he looked down, he witnessed a parade of people walk through the chapel as though it were a funeral procession, and then it all just disappeared. Ghost Adventures investigated the building during Season 4. As happens so often, when Zach is interviewing owners, the guys had an experience. Nick Groff was running the camera, and he thought he saw a male figure peek out from behind a corner that was down a hallway from where Zach and the owner were standing. They all thought that maybe it was the audio guy until he stepped out from where he was on the other side of the wall, which had no access to where Nick had seen the figure. They captured an EVP that said, get off that thing. Nobody was on anything, so I'm not sure what that was in reference to. Huh. Zach claimed that some people have seen the ghost of a miner on the upper floor, and they used some gold that they panned earlier as a trigger object. Yeah, they all went panning for gold and got, you know, a couple of those little gold flecks that you sometimes Uh get. So they had that in a little, those glass tubes that they give you with it. So they were like, we have some gold for you. (laughs) Nothing really happened with that. Karen joined the guys for an EVP session in the chapel and they captured an EVP that she actually was able to decipher. And she thought it said, get me out of here. It reminds me of that guy who's in the haunted. I was just going going to say that. (laughs) Trying to get out of the coffin. Right. What was interesting is they kept thinking that it was saying something else. And she was sitting there and she goes, well, it sounds to me like it's saying, get me out of here with her Irish accent because these people are really Irish. So it's kind of cool. I just thought it was great that here's this woman who's never done EVPs, never listened to them before. And she's like, nope, that's what it's saying. And when I listen, I'm like, yep, I think she's right. That does sound right. I watched a video featuring a tour guide who regaled her tour group with a bizarre story. The Fire and Ice restaurant had signed a seven-year lease for the building. They lasted nine months. (laughs) So much for that idea. On their final night of business, something so horrifying happened that the owners ushered the patrons all out of the restaurant while they were still eating, and they locked up the doors. Good grief. She said, this is the tour guide, that passing by for a time afterward, you could look in the windows and see the meals still sitting on the tables, drinks, everything. Ew. As if it had just been left that way. Everyone, including the employees, had left the restaurant in a hurry. Mercedes, who was the tour guide that used to do the market tours, she tried to find out what had happened and nobody would tell her. I don't know what was so scary that they were like, everybody get the heck out of here. And then they didn't even bother to go back to clean up. How weird. Yeah. It was at least for a weekend. 
but I don't know if they just left it and then the people who, because I think the people who own Kells own the entire Butterworth building and then they lease it out to other people on the different floors. So I don't know if they ended up having to take care of it or what. Kells looks like a great Irish pub to hang out at and have a pint. And with a great history connected to mortuary history, it's right up our alley. Is the Butterworth building haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, if we ever get up to Seattle, we'll have to check it out. And they have a great underground tour there, too. I mean, there's so much of Seattle that's all underground. It's just a really cool place. Want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to leave us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We have questions when people come into the Spooktacular crew that they have to answer before we'll let them in just to make sure they're not bots and that kind of thing or trolls. And Dennis, who we just welcomed in on this show, had shared that he lives in the town of Cherry Hill and not too far away from where his house is, George Washington camped with some of his troops. And he often sees figures marching and noises like someone calling out. Very cool. Yeah, I'd love to get some video recording of that or something. That'd be very cool. Scott Booker sent us an email and he writes, was just listening to the Hannibal, Missouri episode and you were talking towards the end how it isn't common to have sensations outside of buildings that are haunted. Renee, my wife and I were doing a haunted Halloween tour in Irvington, Indiana one year. It was so cool. We saw a lot of very interesting places and learned a lot of local history. While I'm typically the one that feels things in these types of situations, we were outside of the infamous H.H. Holmes house in Irvington. Got to check that out. When all of a sudden, Renee got very cold and started to shake and feel sick to her stomach. What makes this seem legit is that we had no idea that we were outside that house. We'd stopped in front, but we all thought it was just a short break in the walk, according to the tour guide. Later, after we found out where we were, He also told us that he purposefully does not tell people where we are as other people have felt the same sort of sensations there and he wanted any experiences we might have to be real and not brought on by the power of suggestion. Very cool. Needless to say, Renee was completely freaked out but was also quite intrigued and now we have become experts in the history of H.H. Holmes and of Irvington, LOL. Thought I would share. That's very cool. Yeah, I love it when they do that kind of thing where they don't always tell you what's going on just to see if people are going to have some kind of a weird sensation outside of something. And this actually reminds me, I know that Jerry and Tracy on the way to St. Augustine were stopping in Charleston and they did the tour with Mike Brown of Pleasing Terrors. And I know that Mike always tells a story outside of that one cemetery that people pass out every so often. So there are things that can happen to you outside of locations that can affect you physically like that. And Kelly, every so often you get these fun things, like when you belong to community groups, like our community group, which is Claremont Mineola here in Central Florida, and some woman just pops in there. Usually people are like asking for, you know, who do you have? Do your grass? Do you know a good plumber? (laughs) An electrician? Well, one woman pops in and she's like, I work at this place called Pisano's. Has anybody ever had any weird experiences in there? And we were like, Oh, because we just literally noticed that restaurant because it took over. There was a place called Crispers in there and it's right down from the Home Depot. Right. And we literally had just passed it like a few days before that and gone, oh, a new restaurant went in there. (laughs) So she asked about that. And there's a woman named Sarah who said, hey, I work in that plaza a couple doors down from you at the salon Urban Hair Lounge. I've been there for over four years and the salon's been there for 10 years and weird stuff happens all the time. The most creepiest was the beginning of this year. I was working in the back cleaning up. A girl was up front working on a client, and I'd seen in my mirror a person behind me walking past our back hallway. It was too quick, and I couldn't make it out. I went back there to see, thinking maybe it was a client or something that wasn't supposed to be back there, and nope, I'm still creeped out from it. 
There was nobody back there. Very cool. I just thought that was cool. We have this local place. We now have three places here in Claremont that I've heard are haunted. So we're gonna have to check into those a little bit more. Absolutely. Jules Slosher wrote to share that she absolutely loved the Virginia Military Institute episode that she helped us with. And she said, on a completely different topic, I think I may have a plausible theory behind the Gula Getchi tradition of haint blue. And that's where people paint that sky blue underneath their porches. I can't find anything linking the reason to it on the internet, but one of my coworkers, who's an archaeologist, thinks the reasoning could add up. The plantation I work at is located on the outskirts of the town in northwest Alabama. In the early 1800s, the neighboring town was literally nothing but swampland. There were two very large mosquito epidemics, a malaria outbreak in 1824 and the famous yellow fever after the Civil War. Both diseases are carried by mosquitoes. Recently, I've run into several people who have painted their porch ceiling light blue. I was curious why they chose to do this because they aren't very superstitious at all. Because, you know, we thought it was because of spirits that they're trying to get the spirits to go away. Right. All but one informed me they did it because they heard it repelled mosquitoes and spiders. The house I'm researching still has the original hate blue ceilings. Oddly enough, those are the two rooms that we see the least amount of insects. I tend to wonder if the evil spirits, at least for the South, could actually be mosquitoes. (laughs) Very well could be. I know they're pretty darn evil. I'll go with that. But I thought that was pretty interesting. And I told her that I thought at some point along the road, I'd either read it or heard it, that it kept spiders off porches. I think it was when we were doing the Garden District tour in New Orleans. I think I, you're I think right. that's what it was. Because I'm like, I thought I'd heard the thing about the spiders. And I remember thinking, how weird that they don't like that hate blue color. And I think it's because they think it's the sky. I guess. We had another listener, Holly, write us and let us know that uh, Waverly Hills just opened up tickets for the different tours for the fall of 2021. So we better hurry up and get on it if we want to do it. But unfortunately, we won't be able to be going up that way this year. And then Shauna wrote to make some suggestions about places that she'd like us to check out and told us about some of the places that she's visited. And it's really cool. She said, I visited the cave and the Garth Woodside Mansion in Hannibal, Missouri from your last episode and currently live across the street from an abandoned hospital that does a haunted house type experience for Halloween and has had ghost hunting TV shows come for exploration. Very cool. Everyone would know this location very well because we covered it in one of our episodes. This is Asylum 49, folks. She lives across the street from it. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) She says, I've never had any sort of experience that can convince me personally that anything is out there that we cannot see. And she said she's an open-minded skeptic, but would love to have an experience someday, but fears that she's just too insensitive like me. I've had experiences, so it can happen. And then I let her know. I didn't know if she knew because she's listened to most episodes that we had an Asylum 49 episode. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know. So she goes, I'm going to listen to it right now. So she was literally listening to the episode while she's watching them set up for the Halloween. Very cool. Haunted house. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. And this episode was brought to you by Best Fiends and HelloFresh. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Sarah Silver. We're going to be placing you under an obelisk headstone and Amber Ricard, who is going to be placed in a chest tomb. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. 
Kelly. On this episode, we have Kiwi joining us and... He's been quiet all morning. This building had once been home to a mortuary. To a mortuary. It's mortuary. Uh, you're emphasizing the last R and Y a little bit too much, maybe? Mortuary. Mortuary. <laughs> and I love that the guy's last name is Butterworth. It just makes me think of food for some reason. I don't know if we should put that with a mortuary. <laughs> Soy and green. Oh, no. Yeah, I want some syrup now. Ooh, but not that kind of syrup. I know. Mrs. Ooh. Butterworth. Yeah. Coffin <laughs> <Ooh, ooh. laughs> juice. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this podcast just went down the toilet. <laughs> or should I say drain? Oh, my gosh. We could just keep going for hours. You're hilarious. 